Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert along with Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani. It's our midweek show. And if you're new to it, welcome to the party. You're in good hands. 45 years in journalism between the two of us. 35 covering Houston sports. And Sean, let's start with the Texans because it sounds like the players are not upset as much as we thought that Lovey is gone. Aaron Wilson, Sean quoted players who said that Lovey was meeting with them, but not taking their suggestions. He was also not implementing suggestions from his staff. And there was lots, lots of criticisms for him. Yeah. And he's been criticized, you know, all season long by the media and fans alike. Of course, you know, when you're uh, in such a tumultuous season as he and the Texans were, you have to be ready to expect that. But, you know, that report, while in, in very general terms, you don't know any specifics, and we probably never will really learn any of the specifics because a lot of the players are just kind of glad to be moving on to begin with. A lot of them like Lovey, respect Lovey, rely on Lovey. Damian Pierce the other day spoke at length about how important Lovey Smith was to him and his development, but I, I think it does lend a lot of credibility to the criticism that now, you know, maybe rightfully so, Lovey was getting throughout the course of this season in terms of you know, maybe his archaic way of thinking. Um, it's easy to point to the Tampa 2 defense that he's employed as a defensive coordinator and obviously head coach. There was time with the Chicago Bears, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and now the Houston Texans, or the formerly that of the Houston Texans. But I'm always interested in, like, the specifics. And this time of year kind of frustrates me when your organization, a team that you cover, or even a team that you're a fan of, this is when all the dirty laundry seems to be kind of aired out and guys can kind of let their hair down and be a little bit more forthright, honest uh, when asked questions. And, you know, I, I expect it, but it's just kind of maddening because you want to know more. You always want to know what exactly it was that you were watching and why you were watching it and what exactly went wrong. And maybe those are things that we just won't know. But if there are some things that um, I, I think you could take from that report, even if, you know, Lovey wouldn't have been fired, every NFL head coach has – his own detractors to a degree, even on his own team. But there's this thing called professionalism, and you're going to put your head down. You're going to plug away. You've got to find what you're playing for as a player, who you're playing for, why you're playing. And it's easy, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you can surmise really three things is, hey, you're playing for your next paycheck, you're playing for your next job, and you're playing just to stay as safe as possible and be as productive as possible and stay on the dang field. And so I think those things are always interesting. But, um, you know, Lovey Smith was a very interesting character, you know, this season. I kind of grew to recognize more as the year went along that if, if Lovey's saying this to the media, what is he really saying to his team? Because the guy was talking out both sides of his mouth. And one thing that players want and I think demand from the coaches, especially a head coach, is honesty, respect, and transparency. And obviously, he didn't offer three of those things to his players. And it might be four or five of them, but I think when you hear reports like this and there are anonymous sources attached, it's not just four or five guys. It's four or five guys speaking on behalf of a number of others. Maybe it's a majority, maybe it's split down the middle, but I always think these reports are interesting. Yeah, I defended his record when they hired him, but he's old and old guys don't like to change. And that's the problem. Basically, if you listen to reports, is Levy didn't like to change what he, what he wanted to do. And Sean, we, 
we got to talk because there's a lot more going on with the Texans with Casario with some interesting comments uh, just earlier this morning as you and I are talking. You and I are talking on Wednesday afternoon, but just a reminder for everybody out there to subscribe and comment. It's the best way to support the show. Listen to every new show on your favorite podcast app. If you need a Rockets fix, watch the last show with Frank from the Rockets Chop Shop. We looked at a potential few Rockets coaches if they decide to make a change, which we're hoping they do. And we tried to parse out a couple of vets who this franchise could you, could you really use in the locker room, including an ex-Rocket who I suggested. Back to the Texans, though. And Sean, Casario made some news in an interview with your station, Sports Radio 610. He said John Mechie looks in better shape than he did right after the draft. He's improved his overall strength, and there's a chance he'll be ready for their offseason program. So at least one Texan positive. Casario also said the idea that nobody's interested in the Texans coaching job couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, it remains to be seen, though. Words are words. And he'd said it himself a couple of nights ago when he made himself available along with Cal McNair to the media that it's not about the words, but it's about action. So I know they've put in requests to somewhere between six and eight candidates that they would like to interview. I want to see who's interview. Obviously, they can begin virtual interviews, and they might already have done that, you know, starting today after he'd gotten off the horn with, uh, you know, Payne and Pendergast this morning. But I, I want to know who he's actually talking to. And if, in fact, there are fruitful, meaningful, constructive visits with the top uh, coaching candidates in the league. That's what it all comes down to. That's what matters most. And look, he'd set himself up, Robert, to more questions being asked and wondered by fans and media types because of everything that he'd said. And I thought a lot of it was unnecessary. Most of it was unprompted. It's one thing to say when you're asked specifically, hey, you're the guy that this falls on when you've hired and fired two consecutive one-and-done coaches. When does it become less about the coach and more about something else? Obviously a nod to him. And he addressed that, you know, with a fairly lengthy response, as he typically does. But within that response, he'd said, it's weird how he phrased it, but, you know, you were ultimately able to put it in a nutshell and said, hey, if a candidate feels like I'm not worthwhile to be in the position that I'm in as general manager, then I have to acknowledge that and accept that. And we all take that as, well, he would acknowledge and accept that and maybe step down maybe understand his fate if, in fact, it would come via a firing from Cal McNair. We're all left to our own devices and wondering what exactly this guy meant in saying that. And he doubled and tripled down on it, made mention of that two more times over the course of the next two questions. So he'd set himself up for failure in regards to, you know, the lack of faith that maybe even people have in himself. Well, he told he told Pendergast and uh, Payne, this morning, he said he didn't want, he didn't really express himself right. He said he just wanted to say that he was accountable for what's happened. But he'd said that, and he'd done a good job of that in his opening statement. You know, talked about accountability and utilizing more resources uh, this year, this offseason than he had in the past. And so you don't need to say anything else besides that. Um, he'd spent, you know, about an hour answering questions and ultimately the only real answer that we got to anything was a question asked by Mark Berman in relation to the rest of the coaching staff and what their future might be. <laughs> I mean, that was the most solid thing that we got. 
And it's one that anybody else could have answered because, well, we know that they weren't fired along with Lovey Smith. There was no report about that. So it's up to Casario and his further evaluations and whoever those candidates or the candidate is that will become the next head coach and whether or not they want to retain those coordinators or position coaches. So, um, yeah, I thought, I thought the way that the Texans sold that the other night, particularly Cal McNair, who'd said, hey, I'm going to be available and offer clarification on anything that you might need. Well, we needed a ton of clarification, as is typically the case when Nick Casario speaks, and he didn't do it publicly, which matters most, because you're not just speaking to 30 members of the media and cameramen in an auditorium. You're speaking to the entire fan base and the entire city of Houston when your press conference is broadcast live. And people are going to be talking about nothing more than just what they heard from you and really, for Cal's sake, what they didn't hear from him. Honestly, nobody would care that Casario was terrible at press conferences, like a Bill Belichick, his old boss in, in New England, if he was winning. And, like, he's not good at it. Uh, Cal McNair's not good at it. Um, he also said in the press conference that he was going to use resources the Texans had available more than he has in the past. And you and I wondered aloud, what were those resources in the last show that we we did? But he told Payne and Pendergast he was referring to research and development resources that he had, his scouting staff, along with people he knows around the NFL. Do you think that's everything he's talking about? Or does that sound about right to you? No. I mean, I... For a guy like Nick Casario, who's lauded as being such an intelligent individual and coming from the program in which he did in New England for so many years and serving in various capacities up there and starting from the ground and working all, you know, all the way up to uh, even being considered to be a general manager before he took the Texans job. The number one thing you're in charge of along the way and always utilizing along the way that you would expect to you know, basically have on speed dial and at the ready when you do get that job as general manager. And mind you, he's going into year three with the Texans in that role is research and development, utilizing the personnel that your owner, your boss has hired and is paying for to help you do your job. One thing that Nick Casario is really good at doing is explaining what his role, if you were to read it on an indeed.com uh, job description page. <laughs> like, we know what that crap is. He's really good at regurgitating what that would read if, in fact, a general manager or a head coach or um, a data analyst um, would be, you know, on on Indeed or you know, Jobs dot com. But at the end of the day, like, we need to know more. We deserve to know more. The fans deserve to know that you know what the heck you're doing and. Um, it does come down to action. I honestly think he was referring to Cal McNair. I think he was referring to uh, Grissom without naming uh, two guys in particular, guys in higher roles that, you know, um, you know, in past when Jamie Roots was alive and he was filled that team president role with the Houston Texans, he was responsible for a myriad of things and, you know, understood enough about the business side and the football side to interject and to step in for guidance, for help, for, um, uh, you know, advice um, to those individuals that were charged with making difficult decisions. And, you know, I, I think it takes time for those roles to develop, for those people in those roles rather to develop and, and kind of, uh, you know, earn trust. But you just know. said it right there, right there. You just said it. Trust. Casario yeah. 
came in and I don't think he trusted much of anybody. And there was too much trust placed in one Jack Easterby that, and that guy was the master at cutting off trust from everybody else in it. And I think that's basically what he was referring to is Jack was telling me, don't trust the resources development. Don't trust this guy. Don't trust that. Jack didn't trust anybody. There's a reason why Jack didn't trust anybody because he was the master of stabbing everybody in the back and making everybody feel like they weren't a part of the process. And so I think that's kind of what Casario was saying is like, Hey, I, I need to start trusting these other people that I was not allowed to trust in the first year and a half that I was here. I think it's a really good point. I think you're spot on, at least in terms of how I interpreted that. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, what Casario said on Monday night, because he made mention of both of those things. In fact, Nick Casario used the word trust about seven different times uh, throughout the course of the evening. Um, you know, and there were some other words, commitment, um, utilize, utilizing um, personnel. He used a lot of those words in terms of multiple, multiple times on Monday. But one thing in particular that he did say, I think a couple of times, I went back and I parsed through this transcript because that's what you have to do. I mean, it's not like I'm looking to, you know, create these conspiracy theories. It's that you think you know what he's saying when he's live and in person and in front of you, but it's so damn hard to follow. You know, you have to go back and watch and listen and read these things to really get the grasp. And sometimes it's even hard to do then. But he'd said it doesn't come down to any one individual. And he'd prefaced what he wanted to see happen going forward in terms of utilizing personnel and trusting the people already in place that have been in place in specific roles. So what that told me is that was a wink and a nod in a very subtle way to mention the fact that Jack Easterby is no longer here. I think the way we're talking about it, the way, and there's a lot of other people in this town, media types, sports talk show hosts, columnists, you name it, Robert. I mean, we've all parsed through this and come up with our own takes. But at the end of the day, we all arrive at the same conclusion. And that's Jack Easterby wasn't vibing. Jack Easterby was crooked. Jack Easterby was the common denominator, you know, in terms of what went wrong and why it was going wrong and why it was taking so damn long um, to, uh, you know, see any progress in terms of this rebuild. Well, now hey, that she's gone. Hey, Sean, I, I'm thinking as you're talking right now, mm -hmm. I would give anything. And I've been thinking about this all week. I'd give anything to be in one of these meetings with these head coaches and see what they're asking Nick Casario. Yes. And I'm just going to say it right now. If you get a recording of one of those meetings and what they ask uh, Casario, Sean Bajani will give you $100,000 for the recording of that meeting. That's a guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if I come into contact with it first, I'm trying to sell it to TMZ or something, right? <laughs> see how much money KPRC or uh, CBS or ABC or in the local market uh, can offer me for that. Or maybe Berman forks over his cash cow. Um, but I, I, I think um, that's a really interesting point that you just brought up, too, because we mentioned it with each other the other night in our uh, post press conference conversation um, that it's the candidates who are plugged in via agents. You know, there's coaches, agents who are also, you know, uh, representing players and so on and so forth. And they're all connected. 
they've got information. They've been made privy to specific things um, and issues that this organization has been dealing with over the course of the last two plus three years, really. Um, they have the opportunity to ask much more poignant questions, specific questions. And so what Casario was faced with on Monday is going to be nothing to what, you know, there's potential for Ben Johnson or D'Amico Ryans or Shane Steichen, you name a candidate, what they're going to be asking and what they should be asking, what they need to know to create a working relationship and why it failed with Kelly, why it failed with Smith. Regardless of that, we know locally, we know much more about why those situations failed because they were set up to. It was smoke and mirrors. They weren't supposed to work. And I'm sure the coaches probably know a lot more than we do that are out there because they're hearing yes. it through the grapevine and, and NFL circles. 100%. And they're able to surmise you know, and come up with their own conclusions based on the daily information that they're able to intake with you know, multiple meetings, meetings rather, um, that they're having per week with Nick Casario and or Cal McNair depending on who's present at the same time behind closed doors, you're able to draw your own conclusions and more informed uh, conclusions when you're in it. You know, we're on the outside looking in and trying to parse through everything. So I think it's very interesting. I hate that it has to be this interesting. I wish this was one of the more um, blah, you know, coaching hires that you weren't having to worry about the reputation of those that already exist in house like Casario, that you weren't having to worry about the reputation of really an entity that you can't do a whole hell of a lot about Cal McNair, the chairman and CEO, the face of this franchise, unfortunately, um, and who's charged with making the final decisions, franchise altering decisions. It's that that part's unfortunate. Let's get away from Casario for just a bit because uh, a couple of notes that I got for the Texans, you and I talked about Jalen Petrie's tackling issues all season. Yeah. According to Pro Football Focus, <laughs> his 33 missed tackles, I don't know if you saw this, is the most by any individual player since they started keeping the stats 16 years ago. Yeah, 2006 when they started keeping these stats, he had 33 missed tackles. Did you say that? And that is, yeah. uh, they said by far. Um, yeah. And you know, the last stat that I remember looking at, uh, I'm not a member of Pro Football Focus. You know, I'm not paying for that stuff. I just kind of see it, you know, second, secondary, um, third-hand information, if you will, really. Um, I checked it maybe like a month ago, maybe three weeks ago, and he was like 26 missed tackles. And as good as he'd been playing, Robert, we talked about it over the course of the last month, being much more aggressive and just really playing to the product that, the free safety position allowed him to succeed more and to look a little bit more at home. And the issues are still there. You could have stuck him at corner. You could have stuck him at strong safety, play him up in the box more like he was early in the season or put him out there in center field. Didn't matter when it comes down to it and a play is to be made. The guy missed a lot of opportunities and maybe none more egregious than the one that he'd had, um, you know, I think it was at NRG about six, seven weeks ago, probably the worst play he had all season. I think it was, ah, maybe it was further back than that. I can't remember. He gave up like a 65, 62-yard touchdown run or something like that, and about 55 of that was yak uh, after what should have been a very easy tackle. Hell, he could have pushed the guy out of bounds, to be honest with you, you know, on the Texans' sideline, and he went for a touchdown. It, it, I, it, it's worrisome for this year because it's – it's hard to correct those things in season, particularly like as a rookie, right? Because of so little contact to what you're doing in, in practice. And it's not like he's going to have a whole bunch of like uh, extenuated contact 
drills and things that he can participate in in the off season. But what he can do is figure out, go back, study the film, the tape. You know the guy's physical. He's got to learn how to use his physicality. He's got to learn how to take better angles. He has to learn and get back to the fundamentals about getting that helmet in front of the numbers, you know, stopping somebody's progress, grabbing cloth, wrapping up, you know, getting the back of that jersey and driving him into the ground because he's been in position to do all of those things. And these are things that you learn, you know, well before even Robert middle school football, but it's built upon and built upon and built upon. It's middle school football and high school football is so much more physical, I think, in the off season and in practice time during a game week than than it is in, in college and certainly the NFL. He has to get back to those kind of fundamentals, and I think he will. He's a smart, dedicated player who just wants to get better, and we're going to be talking about him for a long time if he's healthy. Yeah, I've beaten him up enough. I'll move on. And a couple more former Texans who were part of Bill O'Brien's many trades, many brilliant trades, I should say. Brilliant, brilliant trades, genius trades. <laughs> uh, we'll be on different teams this offseason. Uh, those two Texans, well, let's start off with Jadavian Clowney, who – is done with the Cleveland Browns. He wants out. Since the Texans traded him, Sean, he's played for three teams, had 14 sacks in four seasons. Again, I'm going to say that. 14 sacks in four seasons, three teams. So after going to three Pro Bowls with the Texans, turns out they cut bait on him at just the right time. And if you forgot, Sean, they got Jacob Martin, Barkevius Mingo, and a third-round pick. And I don't know if I look back on it, at the time, maybe they, they should have gotten a hell of a lot more. But right now, it's like, oh, we got a third-round pick for Jadavion Clowney. Well, that's about right. Yeah, I thought at the time, if I remember correctly, they probably could have gotten a little bit more. But I liked Jacob Martin. I liked Barcavius Mingo at the time. I thought they could come in and be pretty good players for the Texans. And, you know, we, we know how that went. You know, Martin flashed for a little bit. But he was – both of those guys combined, the draft capital that you got in return, like, was nothing compared to what Jadavian Clowney was supposed to be um, and really showed potential, you know, for a little bit in his early years here, Robert. I mean, he looked like he could be an ascending player, but he just never was able to take that next step. And, you know, his exit in Cleveland is very odd to me. I, I say odd. It's not odd. I, I just, I think about it maybe a little bit differently than other people. You know, what did he say upon his, uh, upon the end of the regular season that, he was he was angry that his defensive coaches weren't using him um, to his strengths. You know they were putting Von who was not Von Miller who is it uh, who were they putting on like the best linemen or whatever, um, and he wanted that opportunity to shine. I can't remember who what player it was they were talking about. Well, well think about think about this yeah. though, Sean. Um, this was a guy that made his reputation in a lot of ways on one play. I mean, obviously yeah. the skill set was there. But it's basically a guy that everybody got super high on because of one play, and there was moments. And I bring that up because you look at somebody like a C.J. Stroud who had one game. There are moments. It's moments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, that's a that's a great point. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> that's what you have to be careful with. You have to trust, you know, the total evaluation, um, and. Maybe, maybe these talent evaluators, these scouts, these coaches, these general managers, you know, need, need to say that out loud to themselves in the mirror every single day during the freaking combine. I don't give a damn, 
you know, if a guy measures about three quarters of an inch shorter than you thought he was or whatever he was listed at in college or comes in about eight or nine, 10 pounds underweight or overweight, whatever the case may be, look in totality. If it's two years, three years, four years, five years, however long or bigger the sample size you have to grade a player out, look at it in totality. And, you know, then you can kind of make a judgment. And I, I have to believe I think a lot of these guys probably do. You know, I think I think it's exacerbated, you know, on behalf of the media that so much attention is put on the combine. The combine's for us. We like to see great, great talent, you know, do great and superior things, things that we can only, you know, dream of doing. And we get to see that. And we think it all comes down to that. I really don't think it does. I just think. Well, well Casario said it in, in his uh, interview today on 610. He said, you know, this is about your resumes on the football field. And yes. He didn't say, I don't discount the combine, but he specifically said the resumes on the football field. Yes. And that's what he should say. And that's the case that it, that, that, that it should be. And I, but I think, you know, uh, media, you know, puts, uh, puts too much crap, you know, on, you know, general managers, coaches, and scouts for utilizing just the combine. It factors in. And sometimes is that a determining factor? If in fact you're a prototype guy, if you're a size guy, like, you know, and this does exist. Sean Payton even said it uh, on the Colin Cowherd show um, with respect to quarterbacks. Man, are they going to stop drafting small guys in the first round? You know, like, there are prototype guys. A guy should be this big and weigh this much and have this stature and this frame to put on good, healthy weight to play at the optimum level that his position is demanding of him in the NFL. I get all that stuff. Um, it's just about totality. You can't let that always be the deciding factor because then you're doing everything that we've had. You're going against everything in terms of the conversation that we've had more specifically in baseball, Robert, when you talk about here's the analytics guys and then here's the guys like Dusty Baker that, you know, tries to really use both but says, hey, it's really kind of what's here and up here that has to factor in too. You know, how heady, how much heart are they playing with, that kind of thing, because that can change a lot in terms of what the measurables say or don't say. I just wanted to make one quick point on Clowney, though. Don't you think this is an effort by him? to just play and earn another contract. He never got the big gigantic deal that he wanted initially from the Houston Texans. He never got it. He's been a, a one-year contract guy every single year since he played with the Texans. Maybe he signed a two-year deal with an option or whatever um, in Seattle. I can't remember. But I think this is an effort to say, hey, it's not my fault. It's the coach's fault. You know, they didn't put me in the yeah, right it, Look, that, 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 hold on. That ship. I don't care. You know, I, I know you're kind of trying to incite me, but yeah, that ship's passed. You, you've gone through four teams. Four teams have said, we're not interested in doing a long-term contract with you. Yeah. And, and he screwed it up. And everybody knows what Jadavian Clowney is and yeah, whatever. Think, and and to me, it's more, it's way more interesting to me that the Arizona Cardinals, so this was the other Bill O'Brien guy, that they're, they're trying to trade DeAndre Hopkins because, you know, he was not a DeAndre Hopkins guy as far as off the field. He just, did not like his work ethic, what we heard behind the scenes, that he wasn't, he didn't show up for practice during the week. He, he didn't seem to want to do that. And so he's now on the trade market. And I don't know if we could interest you in a Brandon Cooks and a second-round pick to get DeAndre Hopkins back. But uh, I'm just saying that, like, hey, DeAndre Hopkins uh, not, not being wanted back by the Cardinals, I find, is, is pretty interesting. And I don't know if it, like, it, it doesn't make right 
what Bill Ober, but at least he might have been right about the DeAndre Hopkins off the field. It was so well stupid that he got rid of him for that little. If you wanted to trade DeAndre Hopkins because you didn't trust him off the field, I, I, I don't know about that, but I think that was still a bad idea. But if you're going to trade him, you know, you, you can't get the garbage that you got back from him. But I just thought it was interesting that all of a sudden the Cardinals are interested in DeAndre Hopkins. He's still in his prime, still got a couple of years left on his contract. Yeah, what is he, uh, 31, I think maybe entering his age 32 season? Or I don't know if he'll be 31 uh, for the uh, 2023 season or not. But, yeah, I mean, the guy's still clearly got a ton of game left. But, you know, what you just said in terms of um, – uh, you know, what he was like off the field and the work that he didn't put in, um, you know, to get better on the field and really to make others better around him on the field. Um, I mean, that's stuff that we heard, you know, even when he was here, you know, there were rumblings about that when he was here. So it doesn't shock me that the Arizona Cardinals, who had their general manager step away, they fired their head coach. And they've invested millions, one of the biggest contracts in NFL history for quarterback for any player in Kyler Murray. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. That you had issues with him studying that you to the point that you put it in his contract, like, hey man, you gotta work hard. <laughs> you know, you must work hard, you know, to fulfill this contract. And if you don't, then you're not gonna get XYZ amount of dollars. So if you already have a guy like that in-house, and his number one receiver is also a guy who is known for you know not putting everything that he possibly can into his profession, to not just make himself better, but to help others around him be better, setting a bad example in terms of work ethic and stuff like that, that's how the, the, the Cardinals have to be looking at it. So looking to move him, doesn't really come as a shock to me when you've made the decision to change the entire structure, if you will, from the head coach up. Um, so that kind of makes sense to me. I just think it's that's more than I want to know much more about because here's a guy in DeAndre Hopkins who was here, learned from the best, learned from the guy that did it both on and off the field and was known for staying late, showing up early and putting every last ounce of effort he could not just in himself getting better, but to teammates getting better. And Andre Johnson, and he's going to be the complete polar opposite. Even when Johnson is so heavily involved once upon a time ago as he was with the Texans, when Hopkins was still here, that's kind of mind-blowing to me. So I do want to take a little bit of that with a grain of salt. But when you hear it here and you hear it elsewhere, maybe it's a thing. And I understand why the Cardinals are thinking about making that move. Yeah, and it pains me to even give Bill O'Brien credit for Anything. And of course, like I said, you need to give him credit for anything. You could have traded DeAndre Hopkins and gotten fair market value back in return for him, and it wouldn't be a thing. But because that trade was such trash, and when the deal was made, Hopkins was legitimately a top three. And you could argue, depending on what you want in a receiver, that he's the best in football at the time. Why would you ever make that deal when you have one of the best quarterbacks on your team? Like that whole thing made no sense. You don't have to. Uh, you know, apologize for anything or give, uh, don't give him any credit. And, you know, I, it was just a deal that never should have transpired, to be quite honest with you. And, and the Cardinals could have just, they could just be getting rid of him because they're rebuilding right now and he's, yeah. you know, aging and they, they can still get something back from him. So that, that could be part of the point. But if you're, you're, tr you're trying to get Kyler Murray back on track and you're trying to make something out of that contract that you just signed him to, I would think you would want DeAndre 
Hopkins around. Let's get to the Texans' future. Hold on, real quick. If Brandon Cooks is worthy of a two, what's DeAndre Hopkins worthy of right now today? If he's worried, uh, uh, Brandon Cooks. If you can get a two, if you can get a second-round pick for Cooks, what the hell can you get for DeAndre Hopkins? You can't get a second-round pick for Brandon Cooks. Are you kidding me? Well, that was the word when November 1st rolled around. The Texans wanted and could have. Oh, they, they, you can want whatever you want, but you ain't no, getting one. They could have gotten a two. They could have gotten a two. And he's been traded for second-round picks twice before already. And the Texans had a deal on the table for a second-round pick, but they didn't want to eat the money. And so the deal was squashed. So that tells me at the time, Cooks was worth a two. And so if Cooks could get you a two, what should DeAndre Hopkins get you? Yeah, I mean, sure. He should be able to get you more than a second-round pick, but I don't think he's going to get a first-round pick at this age and where his contract is right now. No. And I mean, I just, you know, it, it might be multiple second-round picks. It might be multiple picks, but it's not going yeah. to be a first-round. You, you don't get first-round picks in the NFL unless it's a quarterback or unless it's somebody really young on a really cheap contract or something like that. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I just know this, like, for the Texans being at least one example, teams will do stupid stupid things especially when you don't know who's really behind the wheel driving the ship let's get back to the texans future because we talked about cj stroud a little bit earlier he's way more in play for the texans now that they're picking second in case anybody missed it i want everybody to listen back to what nfl draft expert joe de leon said on our show a couple of months ago about cj stroud just so you understand context this was prior to the national semi-final game after georgia and then I want to get your comment, Sean, after we listen to Joe DeLeon. Here it is. Who's number two on your board? Right out, CJ Stroud. If, if we're removing some of the things I was talking about with the impact in the game, Stroud physically has all the tools that you want. Big, six foot three, got a nice frame on him. He's not a lighter quarterback. His arm is fantastic. And then his mobility, his athleticism. We've even seen him in some games this year, particularly the Northwestern one where he used his legs to his advantage, and I believe he rushed for more yards than he threw for. So we've got another guy that looks like Justin Fields in a way. I'm not comparing that directly, but there are some similarities to be made there. I think that Stroud has been really, really good in some spots, but the one thing that does become concerning with C.J. Stroud from Ohio State is that being an Ohio State quarterback, you're not asked to make a lot of decisions. There are a lot of limitations on what is required of you reading a defense, looking at what's in front of you. And this is part of the reason why I have Bryce ahead of him is that Bryce is actually asked to read a defense, go through his progressions. We have seen times where CJ has overthought things, not really know where to take the football, and he has still tried to force it into one of his initial reads. That decision-making needs to be worked on. And again, it's something that we talk about every single year with these Ohio State quarterbacks that is a concern. And that's something that's not going to be figured out until he gets to the NFL. It's something that is going to take him being thrown into the water to determine if he is going to be able to take that next step. It's not going to happen in the next few weeks at Ohio State, and it didn't happen at all this season uh, at Ohio State because he wasn't asked to do anything differently. Is there a big drop between Bryce and CJ? No, I don't I don't think so. Uh, just because of the, their differences. If we're grading purely off of talent, CJ Stroud is, is ahead of Bryce Young. If we're grading purely off of processing ability and awareness and composure, Bryce Young's ahead of him. This is a 1A, 1B situation. It just purely depends on what a team is working for and what they're what they're dealing with. I think that Bryce fits better for a team that might be 
more properly positioned to win sooner. And then a guy like C.J. Stroud is going to be better positioned for a team maybe that is developing a little bit. You know, someone that is going to be a couple years away. and you, Like what we're seeing with Justin Fields and the Bears right now. He's still figuring out the position. His decision-making is not entirely there. And the Bears are a team that's still figuring themselves out. So he doesn't have time. He has time. He doesn't need to figure it out right this second because there's not an expectation to necessarily win games. There you go, Sean. What do you think? I thought uh, DeLeon was really good right there. And I was waiting for him to get to the uh, second part of C.J. Stroud because the whole time that he's talking about um, everything that Stroud is that Young is not in terms of measurables and more of a prototypical type of quarterback in terms of side and arm and, you know, ability to what the NFL is looking to do more now with their quarterbacks coming in that are young, utilizing his legs. I was waiting for him to say, yeah, but like, here's what we've learned about Bryce Young in terms of processing information, reading a defense. You know, that was always my first question in terms of a quarterback. Like, I don't care about measurables. I don't care what I'm seeing on Saturdays. I want to know what he's being asked to do. If it's predetermined reads, it's a little bit easier to get away with that sort of thing with collegiate defenses than obviously it is for NFL defenses because we see those struggles week in and week out in the NFL. But when he said Stroud, you know, does struggle a little bit with, you know, the process and forcing balls into his initial read and stuff like that, that's that's what I care about because I know what I'm seeing in terms of his athletic ability. And if you gave me C.J. Stroud's athletic ability with Bryce Young's smarts, his football IQ, I mean, we'd be talking about, you know, a Trevor Lawrence can't miss, quote unquote, type of guy. We'd be talking about that dude, Andrew Luck. We'd be talking about that guy that doesn't exist in this draft, right? But I liked how he, you know, kind of summed it up where it was like, okay, this is like a 1A, 1B kind of a thing. But I, when he was saying that too, I was like, ah, is it though? Because ultimately, you know, I want a guy, especially a quarterback, that when I'm at the stage, and maybe I really don't care what stage an NFL team is, but I'll use the Texans as an example. I mean, like they're mired in – a heaping, steaming pile, bag of pile of crap right now, you know, as an organization. They need help. And you don't have time to really roll the dice and just hope a guy works out. I want as close to an NFL-ready guy as you possibly can give me. And everything says it should be Bryce Young except for his size or lack thereof. You have to be able to come in and process. You have to be able to come in and not – not learn on the fly what decisions to make and how to do this and how to do that. Look, forcing the ball is forcing the ball versus college defense or an NFL defense. You know what's there, you know what's not there, and you get four days over the course of a week to figure it out, learn from film, and go back and try to correct those things in college. And if you can't do it consistently, and if your offense is not asking you to read a defense and be precise and be that thinker on the field who so instinctually Bryce Young is. If I can't get that out of C.J. Stroud, and I don't want to take that chance with a number two overall pick. I don't want to take that chance um, and, and draft that guy in hopes that he becomes my franchise quarterback. I want that guy in-house, and I can mold him to the NFL um, way of thinking based on the strong skill set that he already possesses. 
Yeah, it's interesting because if you're at quarterback in high school right now, you got to think about this. Do I want to go to the college that makes me look best as an NFL player? Or do I want to go to somewhere like Ohio State that's going to make me look really good, but maybe NFL scouts are going to go, well, what can he really do? This is where you've got to be careful. And now we're, we're going to have a couple of cycles, depending on what C.J. Stroud does after what Justin Fields is trying to do and see what the, how, what's the result of them going to Ohio State versus, say, an Alabama or some, somewhere like that that's more apt to show you what it's going to be like to be in the NFL. Uh, Sean, one last uh, thing we need to get to, because I know you're about to run, you're heading out to cover the Houston Cougars tonight. We got to talk about them because, oh my God, they've won by 30 points or more eight times this season. The most times they've done that since their 1977-78 season. This is pre-Fislam and Jamma. That's how long ago that was. And can you believe they're not only number one in the nation, but, they're the favorite, Sean, to win the national championship. Yeah, and I get nervous about that. I was excited. I saw that. Uh, I guess it hasn't changed because, you know, this is the second time this season that the Cougars have been ranked number one overall in the nation. And I think even before, even before they were ranked number one, or maybe it was just right after Robert, um, they were the favorites to win the national championship. And that makes me nervous as hell. Like I, I don't, they already got a target on their back being number one in the country a couple of different times this season. And it's probably not going to be the last time either. You know, they might relinquish this again as, you know, Kelvin Sampson made mention of after the first time they become number one, Hey, it's a rental. You know, we don't, we don't own anything. We still have a lot of season to play. We've got to earn that right um, to keep that, but they do have a target on their back. And, you know, I, I'm saying this kind of tongue in cheek, but, I hate that because how often is Vegas right? <laughs> you know, in terms of picking, you know, the, the college basketball champion, the tournament champion in the preseason. It's so early on. I mean, there's still a ton of basketball to be played. So I, I don't like that, but I'm excited for it. And I'm excited because, you know, for so long, man, we talk about the city of Houston, Robert, not getting a ton of respect. Um, you know, and always being, you know, the bastard stepchild to New York or L.A. or Chicago or Philly or Boston, even, you know what I mean? Like in terms of the grand scheme of things and major cities um, and particularly from a, a collegiate standpoint, you know, this once upon a time ago, it's been 40 years since you've been able to be really, really excited on a consistent basis about this basketball program and it being number one for the first time in decades. I mean, it's huge. It's it's gigantic. And basketball you know, was really the, they were playing catch up, you know, when Kevin Sumlin had the football program rolling here, you know, when he was a head coach, the, you know, and Todd Whitting, you know, stepped in and the baseball program was going and the track and field program has always kind of been there, you know, underneath Blackburn and uh, Carl Lewis and um, uh, Burrell and, you know, it's, it's, where's basketball been? Well, now it's their time, man. And don't look now, but they've been doing this for about a five, six year stretch where they've been really freaking good and have had opportunity upon opportunity upon opportunity to make noise, make something special, make a great run in the tournament. They're fresh off of one, you know, a final four appearance. And this could be the year. This should be the year. You know, God forbid anything happens to a major player um, where they get hurt. Uh, but hell, look what they did last year. I felt like Everybody got hurt last year. They were they were so short-handed last season in the tournament, and they still nearly shocked the world and won the whole damn thing just a few moments away, and they could have been there. Just one game away, and they could have won it. So I'm excited about this season, man. 
I think it's well deserved. I don't think it's, um, uh, you know, uh, what, what do they call it? You know, just kind of like a, a trophy for be, having been so good for so long. No, I think this is well deserved. There's some other really good basketball teams out there. Um, I just I hope they stay healthy because if they do, nobody plays with the tenacity defensively like this Houston Cougars uh, ball club does. And that's one of the sexiest things that I've enjoyed about college basketball over the years really is the defense, that element, the hustle, the grit. And, man, if you could bottle it up and sell what Kelvin Sampson has his guys doing on that end of the uh, basketball court, I mean, do it if you could. Um, but, hell, these guys can shoot, man. These guys can attack the basket. I mean, they're one of the most well-rounded you know, just above that, above that tier that you're used to seeing with a Memphis or a Kentucky or a Duke, you know, they're right there with some of those great teams in terms of what I expect to see on a nightly basis. So I'm pumped up to see them tonight against uh, South Florida. And hopefully they bro- blow the brakes off of them as they should. The yin and yang of sports is that the Rockets and the Texans are the two worst franchises. You have to say they're the two worst franchises right now in their sport. And here we are. Just remember this, Houston. I know you get depressed about the Texans and Rockets all the time. We're Houston sports talk. There's a reason because if one of the teams is down, I can talk about the other team. And we're going to talk about the teams that are bad and we're going to criticize them. But look, the Houston Astros and the Houston Cougars, as we sit here today, are both favored to win the championship of their sport. And the Astros just came off their second championship in the last six years. So put that in your smoke and pipe it or put that in your pipe and smoke it or whatever you want to do with it. But that that's just the truth. And what makes the Cougars, the team equipped to win a title, Sean, give you two words, Jerace Walker. We're starting to see what he's capable of 16 points in the first half against SMU this weekend in the first half, 16 points. And he's hitting 48% from the field right now. More amazingly, the big man, 40% from three, 40% from three. He's collecting the weekly awards, isn't he? I mean, when, what's the last, you know, freshman that you'd seen that was this good this early that, that you just felt so good about? Yeah. For the Cougars, it's, we haven't seen that at all because this guy is a McDonald's all American. And, you know, this is a top 10 ESPN high school recruit. And it's just not that he's a top 10 recruit. What I love about Dre's Walker is he just looks like he knows what he's doing. He doesn't try to do too much. He isn't out there trying to prove I'm ready for the NBA. And I just keep going back to Calvin Sampson, man. And I just can't believe that the same Tillman Fertitta that watches Calvin Sampson and the Houston Cougars is living with Steven Silas right now and what's going on with the Houston Rockets and is not livid at what's going on. And, and that the fact that he is continuing to let it happen just blows me away. Yeah. And there's a much deeper conversation and unfortunately too much that is synonymous, I think with what's going on with the Rockets that we've seen with the Texans. Um, and I hate to say it, but what I think's happening, I kind of agree with. It's just, you have to ask yourself at the end of the day, at what cost are you allowing this to happen in terms of how is it hindering the development, the growth of the young players? And I'll leave it at that because I know that's not the direction that we want to go. And that's a very lengthy conversation. But, but let me just say this. The Texans and the, and the, and the Houston Rockets 
what they should be doing is having conversations with Kelvin Sampson, with uh, Dusty Baker. They need to be having conversations with Drayton McLean. Like, what can we do differently? Can you come in? Can you come? Can you look at us and you tell us how to change what we're doing that leads to winning? Because you have the resources down the street, man. Yeah, They're right well, here. It, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that, and, and then I, and then I know you meant Jim Crane, not Drake McLean. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, Jim Crane. Yeah. I don't know what McLean's doing these days, but uh, I still see his 18 wheelers with McLean Industries on the road all the time. I don't know if he still owns them or not, but he's probably just worried about delivering food and plastic bags to establishments more nowadays than anything else. But um, no, you're right. What happened earlier this uh, uh, football season? They took that great picture that involved Lovey Smith, um, you know, Stephen Silas, Dusty Baker, Kelvin Sampson. They all took a great picture. And there were so many others involved African-Americans in, in prominent positions within athletics in this city of Houston. And I can't remember if I asked the question, at least if I didn't, I, I know I wanted to, but somebody asked the question to Lovey Smith, like, hey, conversations with these organizations, you know, growing relationships, is there pages that you can take from them um, to utilize in this building in terms of uh, how a rebuild process is supposed to look. What are some of the similarities that, that you can draw from? And while obviously nobody got into specifics, and I think even Nick Casario addressed that question as well in the preseason, like there are clear similarities that you can address, and but it's about fact-finding. It's about trusting people. Go figure that, right? Um, it's about developing people, developing talent, not just on a field or a court, but in the front office, you know, because those are the guys that are there day in and day out that are putting all of these processes in place and perfecting them for coaches and scouts and general managers to utilize. So it's all important. So I absolutely think there is a massive, massive benefit and a huge value there. If it's being exercised, I don't know to what degree that it is. But I know it's been a thought. And if it's not being utilized to this point by the Houston Texans to help with their rebuild, if they hadn't been on the phone with Jim Crane, if they hadn't been on the phone with uh, data and analytics people within their front office, then you're doing it wrong. You're just doing it wrong. And, and let me just say, Cal McNair, I think he would benefit the most from going to Jim Crane and, and maybe Casario. Casario was around Bill Belichick. So you assume this guy knows a little bit about winning and what it's, what it's going to take and everything. But I think Cal McNair needs to talk with Jim Crane. Whereas when I look at Steven Silas, he needs to go over to Kelvin Sampson and have a conversation with him. I think specifically it would be Steven Silas and it's probably too late for Steven Silas at this moment, but it's a longer conversation to have Steven. But I mean, Sean, but I, I just want to say that one the biggest difference is, you go to Kelvin Sampson's practice and you know why they are what they are. It is nonstop. He is loud. He is on top of them nonstop. There's no good cop, bad cop crap. Like I talked about with Frank yesterday with Steven Silas and John Lucas, this is all, you know, tough luck. And yeah, you could say, Oh, it's college and whatever, but you know, the not tough love is not working for the for the Rockets at all. And these guys are the same age as the Cougars. They're the same age. So yeah. one guy's dealing with it one way. One guy, you know, the difference is, yeah, you can say this guy, this team's making millions and this team's not. But look, if you're a failure, 
making that millions, you're going to be out of the league. You're still going to have your millions, but you're going to be out of the league. And you're also going to be kind of an embarrassment and a laughing stock and somebody that's going to be made fun of because like you were supposed to be good in the NBA. And look, you suck. And yeah. the difference is with Silas and Kelvin Sampson is like you you cannot take a breather. They are relentless at practice. And I know the NBA these days, it's not about practice. There's not as much practicing. I don't care that the Rockets need to, they should change that idea because, well, you know, I, I know there's not time, but you got to find some time to get in there and practice. And that's the bottom line. You have to find time to get in there and practice. I understand they're going to get more tired as the year goes on because you're, because you are practicing, but, but guess what? You're, you're not winning the championship anyway. This is about setting the tone. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll there's a couple different ways I want to go about this. And so I'll, I'll I'll ask you and uh, make a, make point number one. Did you see the response from uh, Shabari Smith here recently uh, when he was asked about uh, his shooting slump and why he's struggling so much and what he'd said, how he fixes it? Did you happen to see that at all? No, I miss. I don't. I, if I did, I I can't remember right now. Okay, so he was asked about his slump and what he's doing to correct that, how he's going about it, what his mode is, and he'd said, "Look, you know, a lot of guys will say." You just get into the gym and you shoot more and you shoot more and you shoot more and you shoot more. Well, and I'm a paraphrase here, but the reason why you have to be careful doing that is because you don't want to exacerbate what could already be a bad habit and be the impetus for your shooting struggles to begin. That's with. true. It's true. So you need to go back. And this is what he's doing. He said, this is what I'm doing. I'm going back. I'm looking at the film. I'm looking at my form. My technique, my feet, my elbows, my shoulders, you know, where I'm looking at the bat, all these things, all the technicalities, right? You know, you could bore people with it, but it's important to him. And then really it's important to everybody. Um, if you're watching him every single night, these are the reasons why. And he has to identify what those reasons are. Is it his feet, you know, um, and or whatever the case may be. And I, I bring that up because it's not just as simple as hitting the gym and shooting more. I know you've heard that from Alan Iverson. Hold on, no, 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 I want to make this clear. This isn't about, I don't think these guys aren't working on shooting or whatever. The difference between no, a Kelvin Sampson practice and a Steven Silas practice is, it is when you step on that floor, you do not stop. The Rockets take, they take, I've, I've talked about this before. They take coffee breaks during games. They're not relentless. They're not fighting and clawing for the ball. They don't play like their life depends on it. And Kelvin Sampson breeds the environment of, I'm going to get in your ear, and if I see you take a half a second breather during a play, when you're on that basketball, when you're on that basketball floor, you got to work and you got to be ready. And, and part of it is like knowing where to go in the NBA. I get it's more complicated, but part of it is, and a big part of it is for the Rockets when I watch them, it's just the fact that they spend a lot of time taking they take potty breaks. They take coffee break, whatever you want to call it. They take breaks. They're not out there hustling nonstop. They're not out there working nonstop. They feel like they can do this AAU garbage. And it's sorry that it's not working the NBA. Well, you know, kind of the point that I wanted to make in that regard is, you know, the different approach that I'm, I'm making an example that Jabari Smith is taking versus what a lot of other people think you, you could take, you know, it's, some sometimes one way works for another person. Sometimes this way works for another person. And I say that to make the point that in regard to what you're saying about Kelvin Sampson, everybody's on the same page. 
There's one goal in mind, and there's one way to go about doing it, and that is how Kelvin Sampson sees fit. That's his program. That's his baby. That's his ship, and it's going to be run this way. That's the best way that fits this group. That's who you recruited because those guys fit you best, and you can mold them a little bit maybe easier than another type of uh, character or personality. What's different about the Rockets is the you know, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing between, you know, Steven Silas and John Lucas. You have to be on the same page. There's time and place for the good cop, bad cop. But what that can do when, you know, ultimately a lot of the other processes and expectations um, and really the accountability is not streamlined is you can undermine your head coach. In, in that regard. And it's easy to kind of go to the other guy that is going to, um, you know, maybe agree with you on this, that, or the other thing, or maybe, you know what, I don't, John, John's a really tough guy to get along with, man, he yells a lot. And, you know, man, he's really tough on me. You know, let, let me, let me, you're going to tend to uh, migrate towards a Steven Silas. It creates division. It creates you know, opportunity for players to undermine you. And people aren't on the same page in that regard. And when you're all not pulling together, it's going to be hard to be successful. And you talk about taking coffee breaks and stuff like that during the game, and you're wondering why you're seeing one extreme to the other, the, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of difference in the Rocket style of play, we have it at the top. You have it as your, head, as your coaches. And so your, 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 your players and your coaches are around each other more than they are their families, just like in any other sport, and you kind of are a product of your environment. So I'm not surprised at all you know, about the Rockets' lackluster style of play. Because, yeah, the hustle and the way to just a a attack the game, I mean, they're not all on the same page. For, for, again, like another season where you are uber-talented with great skill sets across the board with a number of these guys that you drafted high and developed already, but it's like there is a clear sense of me, 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 you know, I, 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 and not team. And you heard just as much from a guy like Eric Gordon even, what, a couple of weeks ago. He couldn't have said it better. And I don't even care why he said it, what he's going through. To me, he encapsulated perfectly what's going on with that Rocket roster right now when he basically called them selfish. And they don't know how to be a team yet. He's right. I, ag I agree with them, but he's also part of the problem. And I'll just leave it at that. And um, I, I want to close things out by just reminding everybody that we're not doing a Texans postgame this weekend, believe it or not. There's not a Here. game. I, Here. I, I thought there might be a game. I thought maybe that they would give like the, the Texans and Bears a chance to go at it for the first pick in the draft, but they're not going to do it for us. So we're going to rearrange. Awesome. Me and Sean are going to rearrange our schedule. Uh, we're going to try to do a couple of these a week. The plan is uh, we're still working things out, but hopefully uh, might be Mondays and Thursdays now we're going to do shows. So keep that in mind. In the meantime, Sean is going out to cover the Cougs, and I know he's happy about it. Uh, Go Cougs, baby. It's been a minute since I've been there, so I'm looking to see about a 40-50 point blowout tonight for my boys. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, you can support the show by subscribing on YouTube and commenting on the videos. Listen to Houston Sports Talk on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and Google. Don't forget to tell a friend and share our show on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.